0: Well, good Wednesday evening through the church family. We will continue along in our study through the Bible. And tonight we come to the book of Judges, perhaps one of the more difficult books in Scripture. Not not difficult because of the complexity of the of the subject matter, but because of the sinfulness of the subject matter. And we'll talk about some of these things as our study unfolds. Uh, as always, I'm not going to be able to go in depth. As we study the book, this is going to be a, a holy flyover. And uh, so we will come away, hopefully, with a better understanding of the symptoms of man, of our need for Christ as our Savior, and some very practical application of what it means to be uh, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we are to deal with sin in the life of our church. And so before we jump in, let me pray and I ask that God to bless our time. In the Word together, so if you would join me as we pray. God, I ask that you would open your Word to us now as we study the the book of Judges. Lord, I know that this is a a hard book to read. It's a hard book to uh, look into. It exposes in a very real way the sentiments of mankind. And Lord, I pray that above it all we would see your grace see that Your promises stand fast because You keep Your promises even when, you, even when Your people don't. Lord, I pray that You would use this, use this time in the Word to benefit us as we follow You, to benefit our, our church, our church family. Lord, call us to be holy, cause us to walk in faith, cause us to take Your Word very seriously. God, I ask this in Your holy name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, you can go ahead and be turning to the Old Testament book of Judges. We noted last week, as we looked at Joshua, we're now in what's called the historical books of the Old Testament. This is number 2 and that collection of 12. And Judges follows chronologically right after Joshua. If you've got your notes there in front of you, you can follow along, but feel free obviously just to listen But the period of time that's covered in the Judges is roughly 1375 B.C. to 1092 B.C. So it covers about four generations of Israelites living in the promised land. The best estimate of when Judges was written is sometime after the monarchy is established in Israel. So either under King Saul or King David is probably when uh, this was written written. And we know that because or that's our best guess because of the phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel. That will show up a number of times throughout this book. And it seems to be pointing back from a time when there is a king in Israel, when things that were happening during the time of the judges are no longer happening because of the king. And so Uh, There's an unknown time of writing, but the period that it covers, as I said, is between 1375 and 1092 B.C. It takes us right up to uh, the crowning of King Saul. Uh, The purpose of the book is really a somber one. The theme of it is is highlighting the consequences of disobedience to Paul. The book describes Israel's what's called canonization. Now they're in the land of Canaan, that's the promised land, and they're, they're tasked by God to go in, drive out the inhabitants, and to establish themselves as God's people. They are to become the new inhabitants of Canaan by driving out the pagan inhabitants. And what happens is, instead of driving them out, the Israelites will let the Canaanites stay, and they become, uh, they become meshed together their lives integrate, their worship integrates. And so rather than Israel staying distinct, remaining distinct, they become uh, intermingled with the Canaanites. Israel is in the promised land, but they are not in the Lord. They're in the land, but they're not in the Lord. Well, you can see the outline there on your notes. Uh, The introduction, uh, just a few introductory remarks. We have a new generation of Israelites as as the book of Judges opens. We see that in chapter 2, verse 10. And this new generation somehow does not know God. It says, there arose another generation after them, that's the generation of Joshua, who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And so, we're three generations after the Exodus. We've got the generation who came out of Egypt who camped and lived at Sinai, and then who wandered in the desert for 40 years. That's generation number one. Now we have the second generation, those who were born in the wilderness, and or, or were alive just before, and made their way into the promised land. And now we are in the third generation, the offspring of the ones who went into the promised land. And so we're, we're not far removed from Egypt. But note the speed at which the people have forgotten God. These are the, grand, the grandchildren of the people coming out of Egypt, and yet they don't know God and they don't know what He did. They don't know what He did in Egypt. Well, two-thirds of the promise made to Abraham has come to pass at this point. they come to, to pass. Israel has a large population which God promised Abraham that He would make him more numerous even in the night sky, the stars, and the night sky. And Israel now inhabits the promised land, which God promised to Abraham as well, that they would inhabit the promised land. But the third component remains in question. And the third component is that Israel would be a blessing to all the nations. And so the question is, will Israel bless all the nations? And as we have seen in our study in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they will bless the nation through holiness. God calls them to be holy so that the other nations would see the distinctiveness of Israel and the holiness of Israel's God. And so in order to bless the nations, the people had to walk in obedience. But the book of Judges absolutely crushes any hope that this people will bless the nation. It dashes any hope that such a blessing will follow soon after Joshua. The book highlights the sinfulness of God's chosen people. Instead of being distinct from the nations, which was their task, which was the purpose of the law, instead of being distinct, they actually become like the nations. They respond to God's grace with sin. One other thing the book highlights is the need for godly, qualified leadership. It also highlights the consequences that follow when sinful leadership is in place or no leadership at all. When godly leadership is in place, people flourish. People are are taught and led to know God and to live in obedience. But when sinful leadership is in place or no leadership is in place, people perish. Well, before we get into the actual study itself, I want to go over a few definitions. Uh, when you talk about sin, the book is full of sin. It's, it's a report of, of sorts on sin, on the sins of the people. Sin, as a word, means missing the mark. It's, it's, it's an archery term. It means I'm lining up for the bullseye. I'm drawing my bow, but I miss the mark. And sin, biblically, is missing the mark of God's holiness. And it doesn't matter if we miss by a millimeter or a mile, we've missed the mark. But pressing it further, the Bible talks about two different types of sins, two different categories of sins. And that first category is what we call sins of omission. Sins of omission. These are sins that fail to do what God demands. Not that I'm actively doing something that sins of commission, which we'll talk about in just a second. But a sin of omission means that I don't do something that God says to do. Such as in the garden. We see Adam committing a sin of omission when he does not guard his wife against the lies of the serpent. But a second type of sin is sin of commission. That means I am actively committing a sin that God has for We see this in chapter 2 of Judges, verse 11. It says, "...the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals." Which means they actively worshipped false gods. And so there are sins of omission, not doing what God says to do, and sins of commission, doing something that God has strictly forbidden to be done. Those things will come out. Both both types of sins will be numerous in the book of Judges. But I've broken it down into three headings as we move through the book and look at the message of the book. And the first one is this that Israel needs a king. They need a king. They've come out of Egypt. God has formed them into a people, he's given them a law. He has equipped them with with leaders, with Moses and then with, with Joshua. But now they don't have a leader. The book opens with this. After the death of Joshua. So this is the generation following Joshua. But no leader arises in Israel. And so they are, for all intents and purposes, leaderless. And so the fact that they need a king becomes crystal clear. And if you've got your notes, you'll notice that I've entitled the study, Progressive Deterioration. Because that's really what the book is about. It's about the progressive deterioration of the nation of Israel. That's the story of the book of Judges. Israel was not a political nation by nature. They were a spiritual nation by nature. That's the way God had set it up. But throughout the book, the nation goes into this downward downward spiral into spiritual apostasy, which means they rejected God more and more and more. And we're not talking about some pagan nation. We're talking about the chosen people of God, the people who possessed the law, the people who had walked with God out of Egypt through uh, the Red Sea, that they had seen Him descend on Mount Sinai. They They had received His provision in the wilderness. They had been at the Jordan as they crossed over into the promised land. Yet this nation, this nation was rejecting God. It's almost like a house fire. is how we can describe the book of Judges. When the book opens, we see a small spark that's concerning. And yet by the end of the book, 21 short chapters later, the whole house is aflame. It's a sad book. But the writer of Judges, as we read through it, as we study through it, the writer likely thinks that God's rule over Israel will come through a human king. The writer obviously is writing after the fact, and he's thinking there's a human king that's coming that's going to put all of these things in order, that's going to take all of the chaos in Judges and arrange it and bring order to it. He's saying that that thought, the thought of a king follows prophecies that we find in Genesis 49 and Numbers 24. It also fits with the promise of Genesis 3 where God promises a deliverer who will come and Crush the head of Satan. We also see this theme of a human king picked up in the books that followed Judges. That's the books of Ruth and then Samuel. In in order, it would be uh, the books of Ruth and Samuel. Excuse me, got tongue-tied there. Ruth promises a king from Boaz's line. If you know anything about Ruth, and we'll get there, she marries Boaz, and they have uh, a, a son, and eventually... King David comes from Boaz's line. And then the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel features the fulfillment of that promise. And so the promise is made in Ruth and it's fulfilled in the book of Samuel with the birth of King David. But you see, in a greater way, we now see, and what I mean now is right now, as we read the Bible backwards, we're reading the Bible, we're going through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. But because we are on this side of the cross, we can read it backwards. And we can see that the cross ultimately makes sense of what the book of Judges presents to us. We see now that Judges does in fact look forward to a coming king. But he will not be a merely human king. David comes. David fulfills a portion of God's prophecy. But David is not the ultimate healer that Israel needs. And so we see the book of Judges is forcing us to look at the fact that Israel needs a king and it needs more than a human king. He needs a divine king. And because of God's grace and giving us His Scriptures, we see that Israel needs Jesus Christ. The people of God need God Himself. Well, the book itself, the book of Judges, opens on a positive, optimistic note. Joshua has died and the people ask of the Lord... Who, who is going to go up and fight for us? Because the conquest of the promised land was still going on. And so uh, the people ask of God, which is right. It opens with the people keeping their vow, at least partially keeping their vow. Uh, Judah is called upon to lead in fighting against the Canaanites. We see that in chapter 1, verse 2. And because the people at this point are keeping their vow, God gives them victory tells us that in in, in verse 2 and verse 4, that Judah triumphs because God gives the enemies into his hand. But any optimism we have quickly collapses because there's not a central figure, there's not a leader that has arisen to follow Joshua. The triumphs of chapter 1, verses 1 through 26, completely collapse starting in verse Twenty-seven. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. In verse 27, it says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages. In verse 29, it says, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Petron. 31, says, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. In verse 33, it says, Nassali did not drive out the inhabitants of Shemesh. So, right from the get go, the author wants us to see that the people of God did not follow through with what God had said. These are sins of omission. God said to do this, and they failed to do that. And so, Israel did not rid the land of these pagan peoples. And God told them if you don't rid the land of these pagan peoples, you will be influenced by their pagan religion, their false religion, their pagan pra- practices. But, as chapter 1 tells us, they not only fail to drive them out, but they actually let them live there and remain among them. They share their lives together. Their lives become connected. In a sad, ironic twist, Israel subjugates some of these people to forced labor. They enslave some of them. They have some indentured servants. And this is a sad irony because of the history of Israel. They were slaves in Egypt. And you you would think... That if a people was enslaved, they would not want the same to be true of anybody else. But in three short generations, they've not only forgotten all that God had done, they are now bringing this evil on into the lives of other people. One Bible teacher notes that if Israel lives among the Canaanites, it likely will will not be long before Israel begins to live like the Canaanites. If Israel lives among them, it will likely not be long before Israel starts to live like the Canaanites. Well, remember in our study that God had given them, that is Israel, the law at Sinai, and in the law He charges them to be distinct from the rest of the peoples of the world. Leviticus details the importance of holiness, among the people, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all highlight the role of obedience as the fruit of holiness. That is to say, if the people know and love God, they will lead lives of obedience to God. And here we might make a helpful distinction about what faith is. Because a lot of times we think of faith as believing in God. And that's really not what faith is. Faith is believing God. Not believing in God. Faith is believing God. That is trusting God. Trusting what God says to the point that I'm going to act upon it. You see, the people here in Israel, they didn't have a problem believing in gods. If anything, we see that they are a very, quote, religious people. They worship all kinds of false gods. And they... They, they mix the worship of the true God with false gods. And so they are a religious people. They're not struggling with believing in God or a God. They are struggling with true faith, which is believing or trusting what God says. Because what God says is, idol worship is dangerous. Idol worship is forbidden. Idol worship is the path to ruin. And yet they don't trust God enough to obey not love God enough to obey. Israel is now in the promised land, but the question of what their life will be like is yet to be answered. They're like Adam in the garden. God has put them in the promised land, and He has said, keep it. Israel has been put in the promised land, and God has said, here's the law, obey it. Keep the law. But while there are bright spots along the way, and there are a few... The downward trajectory of Judges is just, is just overwhelming. There are bright spots, but the overarching movement is this, is this downward trajectory. If you have your Bible, look at Judges chapter 2. The people fail to drive out the inhabitants. They live among them. They, they force some of them into uh, servant, or servitude. And at this point, God in His grace comes to the people. Judges chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Jesus, says the people had rejected God's word. God said, well, these false gods of the Canaanites will now become a snare. They'll become a danger. They will hold you down. Well, we see immediately following in verses 4 and 5, Israel repents, but it's not a true repentance. It doesn't last long. It only lasts as long as they can get it out of their mouth. Because in verse 10, as I read, this generation that does not know God has arisen. This generation that has no idea of of who God is and what God has done has arisen. This calls them to question Joshua's generation and whether or not they obeyed the voice of God in Deuteronomy 6, where God tells them, teach your children the Word diligently. Talk of it often. Post it in your homes. Wrap it around your, your hands and your head." Make sure that it's the theme of your home. And if the people were obedient to that, it's hard to imagine that Judges chapter two, verse ten would be in the Bible. How is it that a generation of people could arise and not know anything about God if the previous generation had failed to tell them? Well, we see that while Israel is in the promised land, Israel was not in the Lord. They were God's people, they were in God's place, they were not under God's rule. Now that doesn't mean God was not in control, because He is. That's a biblical truth, that there's never a time in history where God isn't in total control of everything. But the people here, what we are seeing, the people here are living as if God is not in control. They they are God's chosen people, they are in God's promised land, but they have rejected God's rule. A refrain that rings throughout the book is this, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We see it in chapter 2, verse 11, and there's some other ones listed on your notes. Israel departs from God's covenant promises, and because they leave the covenant promises of God, they receive the covenant curses of God. God says this in numerous places in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you walk in accord with the the law of God, things will go well. But if you depart, things will go poorly. Even Joshua himself reminds the people of this before he dies. He says, remember all the ways of God and be, be diligent to obey them. Don't depart from them, otherwise curses will come. And so because the people... Fall into curse after curse after curse. God raises up these, these people called judges to come to the aid of the nation. Yet the nation always rejected these judges. They they listened to them for a time just until their 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 their, their turmoil was over, their suffering was over, and then they would reject them. And in verse chapter two, verse seventeen, we read. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after gods and bowed down to them. What a sobering statement. That God in His mercy, responding to the people's sin, raises up deliverers, and yet the people don't listen to the deliverers. They whore after other gods, is what the Bible says. After so much preparation to be holy and distinct, the the exodus from, from Egypt, the preparation in Sinai, the giving of the law, the, the establishing and the institution of the tabernacle and the priesthood. After all this preparation to be holy and distinct, we see Israel's true character, which is that they are wholly rejecting God. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, we see that they are actually giving their sons and daughters in marriage to the Canaanites, which God expressly forbids. He says, you shall not do that because... If that happens, they will lead you off into false worship. They will lead you off into idolatry. You will lose your distinctiveness as God's people. And yet, even though God expressly forbids it, we see that they engage in this. This is a sin of commission. They are doing what God has said not to do. And so, as a whole, to sum up this this point... That Israel needs a king, what we are seeing is the effect of ungodly leadership. We are seeing the effects of a lack of leadership. These people don't have a shepherd. They are doing whatever they think is right. And so they need a king to come along to, to gather them up, to bind them up, and to lead them to serve God rightly. <clears throat> well, to address this issue, God raises up judges It says in chapter 2, verse 16, "...then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge." For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He said, because this people has transgressed my covenant, and I commanded their fathers that they have not obeyed My voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left the nations, not driving them out quickly, and He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So as we read, God raises up these judges... The people would, would cry out for in repentance. They would fall under uh, the oppression of one of these people groups that they did not drive out of the land. They would cry out, Oh God, forgive us. Oh God, save us. God would raise up a judge who would come and lead the people, and salvation would come at least for a time. Then it tells us that they would depart again, and their departing from God got worse each time. It says in verse 19, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. You see, there are several generations that the judges covered. And so each generation, says, got worse and worse and worse. The downward trajectory got deeper and deeper and deeper. The cycle repeated itself over and over again. The Israelites were, were faithful to cry out when things were bad. They were just as faithful to reject God when things were good. And yet, in spite of it all, the Israelites remained the people of God. That's one of the the tensions of Judges. That the people give God every reason to reject them. Every reason to kick them to the curb. Every reason just to wipe them out. And yet God says back in chapter 2, I will not break my covenant. They remain his people because God is faithful to his promises, even when we are not. So this wicked people who reject God over and over again, who fall into deeper and deeper evil over and over again, remain his chosen people because he chose them. He intends to save them. It has nothing to do with how good they are. They have all but rejected God, and yet they remain his people. But in His grace, God sends judges to deliver His people. Each judge, uh, as we encounter them in the book, uh, is unusual by some measure. None of them come to us in ways that we think, oh yeah, that's a judge. We don't have any special look. They're not big in stature. They're not well-known or overly accomplished. For the most part, they are unexpected saviors. And they're unexpected so as to draw attention to God's saving power not theirs. And this really is a foreshadowing, if we're listening carefully, a foreshadowing of how Christ would come. Because the Jews at the time of Jesus were looking for a conquering king that was going to throw overthrow Rome. And yet what they got was a baby born in a stable, laid in a feeding trough, who would die. That's how they received the victimized. And yet many of them missed it because they were looking for someone who looked like a king. They were looking for someone who who, who they thought would fulfill their desires for salvation. But you see, like Christ, these, these judges were, were unusual. They were unexpected. We see that Ehud was left-handed, which in Jewish culture was odd. Deborah was a woman, which is a betrayal of the pattern of male leadership, but her partner Barak was too afraid to lead, and so God raises up Deborah to lead. You see, God was overturning expectations in how He raised up and utilized His judges. So much so that people did not even see them coming, and the reason for this was so that the focus of the judges was entirely on the work of God, not on the work of any individual judge. Now, we need to understand that the way the Bible uses the word judges is not the way we hear the word judges. These are not judicial people who rule on court cases. These were leaders, they, they were more like governors, if you will. There are 12 judges in the book, one false judge in, in chapters 3 through 16 is where we find them. Uh, you can see them listed there on your notes. There are two categories of judges, major judges and minor judges. And the distinction between major and minor is just how much room the book gives them. There are a few judges that only get one or two verses, that God raised them up and the people followed. But then there are other major judges that the book gives a lot of attention to, such as Gideon or Jephthah or probably the most well-known judge is Samson. But you see, as the story goes on, it becomes apparent that that despite the victories won by the judges, they are still weak, they are still fallible, they still fail. You see, Barack, who was with Deborah, is weak and fearful. Gideon, who won a great victory, is weak and fearful. The faults of the judges whom Yahweh has raised to deliver Israel indicate that Israel needs a king. They need a man who is after God's own heart. They need a man who is devoted totally to God. And as we study the book, there's a pattern that presents itself throughout the life and the ministry of these judges. We see it's, a, it's an eight-step uh, eight pattern. That Israel does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. That the Lord's anger is provoked. And an enemy is sent to oppress Israel Israel cries out to the Lord. The Lord hears their cry and sends a, a Savior. The Lord chooses and empowers the Savior by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's not looking around saying, well, who's naturally a Savior? He chooses and then empowers someone through the Holy Spirit. We see that the oppressors submit, and that ushers in a period of peace. Then we see that that the judge dies, and then Israel returns to her sinful Practices. And if we read the book, if you and I encourage you, you know, as we do with, with each of these, read through these books. And what you will find is that not only were these judges flawed, some of them were incredibly flawed, wickedly flawed. As I said, Barak has paralyzing fear. Gideon fashions an idol for the people to worship. Jephthah. Sacrifices his own daughter. Samson gives into lust. Yet, in spite of these things, the New Testament speaks of a lot of these judges in a very heroic way. The New Testament speaks of these judges in a way that's positive. And it highlights the fact that despite their faults, they trusted God. That despite their faults, they were people of faith. And so we should remember them in that light. We should be honest about their faults and their failures. We should also see that they were people of faith. You see, the book of Judges looks forward to a future day when a king would arise. Surely, David is in view. When when the writer is looking for the king who would come, a king after God's own heart, surely it was King David. And there's a portion of which that's true. David is the king that the people and judges need. But you see, David shares many of the same faults, and even more of some of the faults than the judges do. And so ultimately, the book is pointing beyond David to the true King, that is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the Savior of Israel. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the true King whom Israel Needs And so the book drives us to see Israel needs a king. It drives us to see it's got to be a great king who loves God first and who can lead the people well. But we also see that it's got to be somebody who's more than just a human king. It's got to be Jesus Christ. Well, here's the end of the matter, and I just said it. Someone greater is needed. Salvation is ultimately not found in the twelve judges that arise. Salvation is ultimately not found in the kings that arise. We'll see that as our study goes on. Salvation is, 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 has got to come through somebody greater. Well, after Samson dies at the end of chapter 16, the book takes a downward turn even more. The fact that Israel does not have a king is noted numerous times in chapters 17-21. through 21. We'll read that in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. These chapters, these closing chapters of the book highlight the sinfulness of the people, their careless neglect of the law of God, their careless neglect for the right worship of God. And what's even worse is there is a mixing together of pagan worship and godly worship. And we see that with Jephthah. Nowhere does God call for human sacrifice, and yet Jephthah offers his own daughter. He thinks he's, act, he thinks he's acting in a godly way, and yet God never sanctions human sacrifice in that way. The two stories that close the book show how, shocking, how, how shockingly deviant the nation has become. In chapter 17 and 18, a, a young man named Micah steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. His mother asks him about it, and he confesses to stealing it. And for some reason, she's overjoyed, and they make it into an idol, or make it into idols. And they fill their house with idols. And there's a young Levite priest passing through, and he asks if he can stay with Micah. And Micah says, why don't you live with me and become my personal priest? And so, for whatever reason, the Levite agrees and becomes the personal priest of Micah in his house of idols which is a betrayal on two accounts because number one is the, the, the law never sanctions private worship and never sanctions private religion. God doesn't assign to individuals their own priests. See, Israel's religion was to be corporate. They were to worship together. They had a corporate identity. But even more so, this Levite priest who was to be a minister of God is now a minister in a house of idols. It's a deep betrayal. But along with this, the tribe of Dan comes in and takes Micah's idols. And they take Micah's idols down to Shiloh where the tabernacle is, and they set up the idols in the house of God. So there's this mixing of pagan idolatry and worship of God being overseen by a Levite priest who is the great grandson of Moses himself. And so what, what opens with this optimism of obedience at the beginning of Judges, we find ourselves at the bottom of an abyss where sin abounds, where unthinkable sin abounds. Well, as Judges comes to an end, we must ask, where spiritually is the nation of Israel? They are in the promised land physically. They are numerically large, and they are terribly, terribly broken. Israel was devoted to the Lord for short periods of time when things got desperate. But when life was comfortable, they fell into idolatry. They lived no differently than the Canaanites. You see, clearly the judges were not the permanent solution for Israel's problem. Instead of blessing the world, Israel seemed to be cursed along with the rest of the world. Israel clearly needed a new direction. They needed a king. They needed to be devoted to Yahweh in the land that He had given them. They needed to live under Yahweh's rule in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Although they were moved into the land of rest, they were not experiencing the rest that God had promised. You see, biblically, they need a king. Now, in the immediate sense, the need for a king is fulfilled in King David. The Bible tells us that King David, despite his flaws, was a man after God's own heart. We see the nation come together and flourish in an unprecedented ways under King David's rule. But ultimately, King David is not the Savior that's needed. Judges p- pushes us, forces us to see that the only salvation for a broken, sinful people is Jesus Christ. And so let's take a few moments just to give some reflection and application you see, Judges is a difficult book to read. It's a difficult story, but it's a very personal story. We see that God reminds the people of all that He's done for them, and yet they respond to Him in sin. They rebel. They reject His covenant promises. While they're called to be distinct from the nations, they become just like the nations. God blesses the people. God then warns the people, and the people respond by sinning. This is the story of judges. I think if we're honest, this is the story of our lives. And God blesses, God warns, and we rebel. See, the story of mankind is that because of sin we try to, to make our own way. We we try and we fail. Our best attempts only succeed for a short amount of time. And so we cry out, oh, God save us. God is merciful to us. And then if we are like the Israelites, we repent for a time, then we fall right back into what we are doing. We fall right back into the idolatry that has taken us away from God. You see, there is no true fulfillment. There's no true salvation in ourselves. There's only salvation in Christ alone. Which means that our repentance cannot be short. Our repentance cannot be empty. Our repentance cannot be partial. It cannot be manipulative. You see, the Israelites attempted to manipulate God through their repentance. They only wanted to be saved from what was plaguing them at that moment. And as soon as they were saved from it, they went right back to what they were doing. So they showed that their repentance wasn't true. Their repentance wasn't full because we see them repenting all throughout the book. It's never lasting. And that holds a lesson for you and I. It holds a lesson for the New Testament church. The lesson is that repentance is necessary because we are a sinful people, it is, it is necessary. For salvation, that every individual comes to realize that there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. I must repent of my sins. That means I recognize them, I turn away from them and practice them no more while I am actively moving towards Jesus Christ. But repentance is also necessary corporately, that we as the people of God live a life of repentance, knowing that God is faithful to respond with grace when we do repent. Listen to one pastor as he recalls God's faithfulness in the wake of his church's repentance. They, they went through a corporate period of repentance and this is what he says. He says, Our congregation has certainly seen God's faithfulness. Yes, He has allowed us to face hard times. In the last 50 years, we have faced people leaving the area, and we have seen declining numbers. We have faced picketers outside the building and racial prejudice inside the building. We have been guilty of wanting entertainment instead of exposition, decisions for Christ instead of discipleship. We have had pastors who deceived us and divided us. We have had members who sinfully rebelled against God's Word. And yet, he says, through it all, God faithfully maintained a witness to Himself among the people who remained, even while He allowed His witness to be extinguished in so many other churches. See, there's a stark lesson for the New Testament church in the book of Judges. We need to note that God cares about our corporate holiness. He cares about the kind of people we are and whether or not we are obedient to His Word. God cares about how we do church. While God never abandons His people nor His promises, we see that very clearly in Judges 2. God says, I'm I'm not going to abandon my promises. We see that God does discipline His rebellious people. He never abandons his people, but he does discipline his rebellious people. When we when we fall into sin, when we neglect the word of the scriptures, when our religious lives and our behaviors do not match the commands of God in his word, when we stray from God and walk as hypocrites, we can expect that God will discipline us. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter twelve. Hebrews chapter twelve we find a word on godly. Discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, picking up halfway through verse 5, it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves, chastises every son whom receives it. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? You are left without discipline, in which all have participated, Then you are an illegitimate child and not a son. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We need to note that God knows everything. He knows everything. He knows every facet of our lives. He knows our faults. He knows even, even the intentions of our heart, the things that we never let out, God knows. We need to note that our personal holiness, my holiness, your holiness, our personal holiness is linked to the corporate holiness of our church. The way in which I follow and honor God in my life affects the life of this local church, and the same with you. You see, we don't sin in isolation. We think we do. We think we sin and get away with it. We think we sin and nobody knows. But that is not true. Our sin has a direct effect on the body of Christ in some way. And we need to hear very clearly from the Bible that God disciplines us when we sin. God disciplines His church because He loves His church. God disciplines us when we step outside of His Word. God disciplines bad leadership or bad leadership structures. God disciplines unrepented sin, both hidden sin and known sin. God disciplines sinful attitudes and behaviors. God disciplines factions that arise in the church that cause division. God disciplines hypocritical and false religion. God disciplines power struggles in the church that detract from Jesus' lordship. God disciplines us when we value our traditions over His mission. God disciplines us when we get lost in the culture and are not distinct from the culture. And we need to take note from judges that sometimes the Lord's discipline is not as quick as we would like. We'd like it to be quick like a spanking. It's done, it's over with, we can move on. But sometimes... The Israelites suffered their punishment for as many as forty years. If you go back and read under and in chapters three through sixteen, the people suffer for various lengths of years as the Lord brought oppressors in. Sometimes three, sometimes sixteen. Under Samson, they suffered forty years. Is it any question why some churches go decades? Even generations without seeing fruit? Is it any question why some churches go long periods of time with no fruit, no life, no joy, no growth, no baptism? Because unfortunately we're seeing churches that are more in love with themselves than they are with God. That they are more in love with doing things their way than they are in doing things God's way. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, they fall under the discipline of God because God loves His church. God desires that we walk in holiness according to His word. But we must hear that final phrase in Hebrews 12. Because it says that the discipline of God yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, You see, God disciplines us so that we come to know Him more, so that we learn to walk in faithfulness more, and what we see is that His discipline is the path to faith and flourishing. Do you know why God confronts us in our sin? Why God disciplines us in our sin? Why God won't let us continue in our sin? Because that's the path of death. Even though in the moment we think it's life. God disciplines us so that we come to see Him rightly and know Him rightly and walk in the fullness of faith. The difficult thing is that sometimes we don't see it when we are in disobedience. Sometimes we don't see it when God is disciplining us. Sometimes we are too far gone that we don't understand that we have left the Word of God. So, two questions as we close. The first one is, Judges presses us to ask the question, where might we need to repent? Are there areas in our lives where we have left the truth of God's Word, where we have wandered off into sin, where we are mingling together the world and things of God? Where might we need to repent? And the second question is, where might be God disciplining you just to lead you to walk in righteousness? Where might God be disciplining you? You see, sometimes we think God has left us alone or that God has gone away or He's not listening. Sometimes, more 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 appropriately, when that's happening, God has let us drift our, ourselves to drift away. We've wandered off into sin. And God is using discipline to bring us back. And so the question... Brothers and sisters, is not why is God far away or why isn't God doing what He said. The question is for you and I. What in our lives is preventing us from receiving all the blessings that God promises in His Word? You see, God didn't withhold the blessings for the people that are talked about in the book of Judges. The people in the book of Judges wandered off and sinned against God and therefore were reaping the consequences. Where might God be disciplining us so as to lead us to walk in the fruits of His peaceful righteousness? Let's pray. Lord, we love You and we want to walk in the peaceful righteousness that comes to the Gospel. We want to be a people who love You and who know You and who are obedient. We want to be a people who are distinct from the world because of the holiness that you grant us through Jesus Christ. Keep us unstained from the world. Empower us, O God, through the Holy Spirit to live faithful lives. Help us, O God, to evaluate ourselves, to see, are there areas where I need to repent? Are there areas where you are disciplining us so that we walk more faithfully? Lord, remind us of the, the sweet words of Hebrews 12, that You discipline us because You love us. You discipline us for our own good. And Lord, as You discipline us, we come to love it. We come to see the benefit of it. So Lord, we pray that You would use this Word in our lives, our personal lives and our corporate lives as a church. So, God, we pray all of this in Your holy name. Amen.